Uh, just so you know that I'm human. Uh, <laughs> my, uh, my wife showed up in the parking lot with our three kids, I don't know, 20 minutes ago, and uh, they turned right back around because um, one was so heavily sleeping um, that uh, they ended up taking off. So I'm sad that they're not, that they're not here, but I'm, I'm glad to be with you all this morning. So, um, so 1 John 3, 11 through 18. We, we have this question. We have this question. What, what world are you living in? What world are you living in? Like, like yesterday when one of my son bites the other one, I may ask, what, what world are you living in that you think it's okay to bite your brother? Like, from what place, from what world did that come from? Or what if you meet someone and it feels like, <clears throat> feels like they're constantly talking down to you? And you reflect on it later with a friend and you ask, what world does she think that she's living in that she talks down to everyone? Does she think that she's better than, than everyone else? So this, this, is, this question is one of the questions John helps us ask in the entire book of 1 John. 1 John 1 helps us ask, what, what world are you living in that in every situation you're never wrong, that you don't sin? What, what world are you living in that you always seem to find a way to get what you want without ever really paying attention to doing what is right? John reminds us what world we're living in. Last week, Sebastian reminded us that in God's world, we're his kids, and we're his kids in good standing. If we're living in a world where we feel like we have to keep checking in and asking, hey, are we good? What can I do? Where are we? God is saying, listen, remember Jesus. We're good. You're my son. You're my daughter. It's settled. That's it. Be assured in that. All the energy we spend on getting his attention and checking in and getting our act together, we can spend on the joy of doing what our father does. God does right, so we do right. A world where a parent's love must be earned or courted, that's a different world. But fully assured children do what's right, just like their father does right. That was last week. This week, we'll move from our relationship with God to our relationship with one another. Chapter 3, verse 10, cues us in to this transition. 3 verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. That's last week. Moving into this week, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Verse 11, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So the, the, the main point for this morning is that assured children love their siblings. Children assured of their father's love, love their siblings. And I'm actually going to give you our conclusion right now and say where we're going, which is very similar, which is assured children, love your siblings. So that is the main point and the conclusion. 
And our first stop on that journey is to take a little look at family history, the family history, shared history we have in the scriptures. So family history shows that self-assured people who find their assurance within themselves or insecure children, children who have no sense of their security or assurance or love from anyone at all, uh, fracture family relations. So verse 12 says, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We've seen this phrase throughout 1 John, from the beginning. And it often refers back to what Jesus taught. It's John's way of calling out the fact that this isn't new. This isn't something we've heard for the first time. We've had this tradition from the beginning. Jesus is recorded to have said multiple times that we are to love our brothers as ourselves. And actually, Jesus is riffing on Leviticus 19.18, which says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The from the beginning John refers back to in these verses, though, is probably from the beginning of the biblical story, because he refers back to Cain and Abel and says that we are not to be like Cain. The story of Cain and Abel is a story of two brothers. They both bring an offering, a sacrifice to the Lord. It says that Cain brought some of the fruits of his harvest, and it says that Abel brought the firstborn of his flock. God approves of Abel's offering, but does not approve of Cain's offering. Cain brought some of the fruits, not the first fruits. Abel brought the firstborn of his flock. So clearly, Cain was holding something back from God, but Abel was not. God gave assurance to Abel and withheld it from Cain. And the story says that this made Cain very angry. God responds to Cain and says, if you do what's right, you'll be accepted. But instead of dealing with his anger, disappointment, jealousy, his insecure standing before God and rectifying with God, Cain goes out and kills his brother Abel in his anger. This is the first of the family dysfunction and destruction in Genesis. The book ends with the Joseph story, which is where his brothers plot together to uh, sell him into slavery, and they get rid of their brother out of their jealousy for him, and then all the sibling stories in between. So Cain's relationship with God rippled out to his brother, and our relationship with God ripples out to our siblings. There are all kinds of ways that our insecurity or over-security can ripple out to our sibling relationships within the church. For example, if we're fully assured children, we aren't threatened by each other's gifts. Why, Why does she get to be the Bible study leader and not me? Why has God blessed her and not me? We live in a world where God favors all of his children equally. We live in a world where we're all on the same team. 
where we celebrate each other's positions and gifts and roles, and we don't revel when others crash. The story also shows that we don't really like it when others are a mirror for our wrongfulness, when our sister or brother are mirrors for our conscience that God uses to show us our shortcomings and sins. Maybe you've experienced that in a community group. We'd love for God to just maybe, I don't know, address us directly, and, but for another human to stand before us upright and full of goodness can make us frustrated that they're there pressing in on us, on, on how we're currently operating. Cain could have celebrated his brother's goodness and rightness, felt conviction from him, learned from him, and could have joined Abel on team righteousness. In the same way that Cain took Abel down with him, the small number that we've talked about who had gone out from this community that John is writing to was trying to take them down with them. First John says at several points that they were intentionally, intentionally trying to draw them away and deceive them and lead them out as well. We see this uh, sort of playing out in 3 John 9. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will not welcome us. So when I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, spreading malicious nonsense about us. Not satisfied with that, he even refuses to welcome other believers. He also stops those who want to do so and put them out of the church. Diotrephes wanted to be in control and to be seen and to be heard and for the community to center around him. Diotrephes wanted to be first. So I think it's interesting, too, that Cain had held himself back from God, which related to the fact that he also held back his love toward his brother. This community had gone out. It sounds like, um, and this is the same with the community that had gone out. They had gone out. It sounds like in 1 John that they weren't obeying God's commands. And 1 John says that our love for God is shown when we obey his commands. And And they were holding themselves back from fully being given over to God, from obeying his commands, which related to their holding themselves back from the church. They were disobeying God. They removed themselves from the fellowship. And in all of this, they removed themselves from the assurance of what world they were living in. They had come to inhabit a different world, and they didn't want to leave it. The world of being first is not the world of self-sacrifice. Our sinful attitudes and practices often cause us to distance ourselves from the church and even work against it in order to justify our position. Imagine one of the community groups here who are taken by a new book that comes out which teaches them to start arranging themselves in a strict hierarchy of importance, and then they attempt to get every other group to follow suit. This is the word hatred that's being used. It's hatred because the hierarchy opposes God's kingdom. And it's hatred because of the desire to bring others down 
with them from a community of life to a community of death. So more broadly, John says that um, we shouldn't marvel, we shouldn't be surprised when, when others, when the world hates us. We can't expect non-siblings in the world to show us love. They, they don't understand the Father's love, and they don't understand his plan. They have their own world built on self and sin, and sometimes you're going to be disruptive to that. John, um, well, you know, we, we just have this idea that um, if we do what is right, and we do well by people, that other people will like us and do well by us. And it's simply not what Jesus teaches. John, in John 3, when Jesus is talking with Nicodemus, he says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for their fear that their deeds will be exposed. So like many of us work, um, like we probably work for like really great companies for the most part, but it doesn't mean that they're not from a different world. Let's say that you're in the marketing department and your boss wants to portray your company in a certain way and you say, this doesn't really match up to what we can promise and what we've delivered in the past. And what about truth in advertising? You know, there's a conflict that arises. Um, Our worlds are going to come into conflicts at times. We have to know this. And in the way of the priorities of certain places and spaces that we inhabit. Conflict is actually evidence of the fact, at times, that we are God's children. So let's move to our next point. Instead of resentment or jealousy or fear or other relational dysfunctionality, we relate to our siblings in love. Assured children pass on the love they receive from their father. Assured children pass on the love they receive from their father. Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We don't abide in the world of hatred, of murder, of death. We abide, we operate in the world of life and love. Again, John is helping us identify what world we live in. Are you part of the world that Cain started who hated his brother? What exactly does John mean when he says hatred and murder? Hatred is withholding ourselves, as we've seen, and as we will come to see in the coming verses. And it's also a desire to bring someone down or to make someone go away. It's the impulse that says something like, get out of my way. Get out of my way. Or, I wish that you weren't around. Cain wanted his brother out of the way because Abel stood there as a symbol of his own wrongfulness before God, that he was unaccepted before God. Cain 
made Abel go away, and in doing so, he abided in death. Abide can, in the Greek can literally just mean to continue, to continue on, to continue something that was started. So just like God set creation and life into motion and called us into being to cultivate and keep it, to continue it, to abide in it, so God set the gospel of Jesus' loving sacrifice in motion and calls us out of the world to continue it, to abide in it. And we do this, we abide by practicing loving sacrifice. We can continue the work of God's life and love, or we can continue the work of Cain in wishing others were out of our way, in wishing that they were dead. We can begin to wish away someone because they stand in, our, stand in the way of our plans or the way that we think things should be. Last year, there were definitely times when I, in effect, said to my family, I'm trying to start a business. Get out of my way. My business first, you second, and if you don't like it, you can get out of my way. We can very easily begin to treat others as though they're in our way and put them on the altar of our own ambition. Who's standing in your way? And why do you feel that they're standing in your way? Maybe you're a teacher and you often think, if the administration would just get out of our way. Maybe you're a parent and your kid's constant needs and presence are in your way. Maybe you have a vision for your community group and you think your leaders should get out of the way so you can lead. People are just in the way. This is the world of hatred and murder. We have turned from this world, says John. This is not our world. Why? Because the story of the gospel teaches us a different way. Jesus comes as our brother and disrupts our sense of assurance by showing us our sin. He came and exposed our desire to be first, our love for money and its unjust outcomes, our obsession with the image of being holy rather than actually being holy. He came and told us whose authority we were actually under and that we needed to come back under the authority of God and to pay closer attention to his instruction. And we, we welcomed him at first because he performed miracles for us, because we thought he would lead us to political victory for our side. We paved the way for him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But when it became clear Jesus didn't come to fulfill any of our plans, and his teaching and authority bore too heavy on our consciences, we tossed him aside and said, Get out of our way, Jesus. You're not part of the plan. We mocked his life, and we murdered God's perfect representative thinking it better that he were out of our way. We watched in relief as he was executed and done away with. But then, God raised this one 
named Jesus, who we felt so strongly was in the way, and placed him at his right hand. And we had to deal with this, didn't we? We who have passed out of death and into life, we have had to deal with this fact. That in fact, we were in God's way, in the way of his creation plans, in the way of his salvation plans. We were in his way, and yet he didn't murder us. But instead decided to settle our relationship once and for all, and instead of pushing us out of the way, he stood in our place. Like Cain, we were rebels to the true nature of his kingdom, and we deserved as rebels to be abandoned. And yet Jesus was the one who felt the full weight of God's assurance ripped out from under him, abandoned and unloved, when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus held nothing back from us. He laid down his very life for us. The Father held nothing back from us, giving his, us his Son. If we had any doubt God loved us, that in our very act of murder he claims us and has not abandoned us and binds himself to us, if we had any doubt, we're assured, you're my son, you're my daughter, that's it, it's settled. Isn't this the world we live in? We know this story is true. We know this love is true. His love makes us whole. Our deepest relational selves have been met with the surest of love. We are his assured children who have whole hearts and ready hands for the people that God puts in our path. If this is our world, if, if this is our world, to whom would we be jealous? If this is our world, who's a threat to us? If this is our world, how can we be ignorant to other people and their condition? If this is our world, to what purpose do we have in being spiteful? No, assured children pass on the love they've received from the Father. And so our final point, in our final point, John helps us with some practical definition. We've talked about kind of the relational side, and there's a practical side to what John is talking about in this kind of love. What is this kind of love that the Father has for us and that we're to pass on? The love we've received from our Father is love that puts others first and creates conditions for life for, for our siblings. It puts others first and it creates conditions for life for our siblings. Verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. We've seen the story of Cain, who took a life, and we've seen the story of Christ, who gave his life. Love is defined as giving life, as self-giving that creates life. Love of God dwells in a person's heart when their heart is open to others and their life 
and their condition. Hatred dwells in a person's heart when their heart is closed to others and their life and their condition. And who are these siblings that Jesus and John are talking about? Are, are you living in a world where when you come on Sunday morning, you sit among a random group of people? Or are you living among family? If we're in Christ, we live in a world in which we have siblings to which we're actually responsible for their welfare. Cain asked if he was his brother's keeper. In other words, am I responsible for Abel? When Jesus was on the cross in John 19, he says that he saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. He said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So we have siblings, and we're responsible for them. Behold your brothers, your sisters, and we're to love them. And love in this passage is two things. Love that puts others first and creates conditions for life. The relational aspect of this is the instinct to put others first, and the practical aspect of this love is how we create conditions for life for others. We're to put others first. Jesus counted our life above his life. The Garden of Gethsemane shows that he didn't want to die, and yet he put his Father's will and our lives above his. Jesus laid down his life and put us first. This is love. He did not come to be served, but to serve. And Jesus, of course, didn't put us first so we could be first. He put us first so that we could put others first, so that we too could learn to get out of our own way. Jesus says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And then also there's this love that it creates, it creates conditions of life for others. It, it's, it's love that makes way for life for others. How can we say that we're continuing the work of God's love if we see our brother or sister has a need that we can meet but don't meet it? Do we live, do we live in, a, in the world where God gave lavishly of his own self or do we not? The Greek word for worldly goods in verse 17 is one of the Greek words for life, coupled with the word world. It refers to resources needed to maintain life and means of subsistence, the stuff of life in this world. It's not the word John uses for eternal life, which is zoe, and it's also not the word for life in verse 16, which is the Greek word more for like self. Jesus gave his life, his self to us, and we're to give ourselves to others. But he uses also this word bios. So in other words, 
Our love for one another is not only relational and spiritual because he says that we're to give bios, worldly goods, material possessions, stuff of this world, things people need to people when they need it. And by that, we show we are abiding in the one who laid down his life and gave us eternal life. So what are these worldly goods? Like, what the New Testament uses bios in a few different ways. In Luke 21.4, it's used in this way, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she gave out of her poverty, uh, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. In other words, it can mean the money or resources that we have that keep us alive. Luke 15.12 Bios is used this way. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And the father divided his property, Bios, between them. So it can mean property or the contents of an inheritance. Colette and I have been talking a lot about the Bios of sleep and how sleep is so important to our human condition and condition for life. Then also, um, this verse has roots in numerous places in the Old Testament. The closest resemblance is uh, Deuteronomy 15, which talks about the the cycles of Sabbath that Israel was to to live into, which all were to lead to the year of the Jubilee in the 50th year. Deuteronomy 15.7, If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, Do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debts, is near, so that you don't show ill will toward the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. Then they may appeal to the Lord against you, and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them, and do so without a grudging heart, then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. All of these, all of these are referring to material conditions, material needs. Our welfare as Christians should primarily be tied to our brothers and sisters. In 3 John John tells the church to give the traveling teachers a place to lodge, and by that, they show brotherly love. But how can we live in a world of mortgages and car payments and retirement accounts and in a world where I'm to give my brothers and sisters whenever they have material need? In other words, in a world whose foundational material reality is our material indebtedness to the world, how can we form a community who is economically independent and so not be as beholden to it? How can we buy each other back from being exploited by the world's economic realities in the same way that God bought us back from sin's dominion. What am I saying? 
How can we create the conditions where we're all more free to give and create more life? We have a long way to go in our creativity and how to do this as churches. Out of love for each member of this community, we could form a cooperative around any number of socioeconomic problems we face. And we could pretend, like in Acts 2 and Acts 5, that our resources are fully available toward those ends. And that, like in the sabbatical laws, no one has to experience the kind of pressures that debt places on us. Where we can each have weekly, monthly, yearly rhythms of rest. Aren't we in need of rest as a society? What if we were dead to retirement accounts, which were invented in 1978, by the way, but alive to one another's fate in more significant ways? What if we found a way to be dead to our mortgages so we could together be more radically caring to one another and hospitable to outsiders? The scriptures teach that creating conditions for life can be done in a moment of open-heartedness. We give someone a car so they can get to their workplace. And it can be done in more structured ways to the benefit of all and to the benefit of outsiders, reflecting the heart of the Jubilee, and both are love and both create life to the full. Assured children... Love your siblings. Use your creativity. If you're sitting here thinking, well, who, who am I supposed to show love? And I, I don't know, like, how exactly? You're missing, you're missing the heart of it. Use your creativity. God's work of love has poured forth from the heavens down to us in the person of Jesus. And in it, we know that we are his and that he is with us. God doesn't need anything from us. But our brothers and sisters have all kinds of practical needs at all different points in life. Those needs are not in our way, but are opportunities to demonstrate that we live in a world where Jesus went out of his way to meet our greatest need, our need to pass from death to life. Assured children... Put others first. Assured children, create conditions for life for your sisters, for your brothers. Kids who know they're loved, pass on that love. Our playbook is not jealousy, resentment, fear, opposition, competition, anger, or apathy. Our playbook is an active pursuit of life for those who Jesus calls our siblings, no matter the cost, personally or materially. Our deepest selves have been given life and shown love so that we can turn and give life and show love to our brothers and sisters. And maybe, just maybe, others will ask, what world do they live in that they love each other so deeply and so well that no one has any need. Let's pray.